This is a podcast with Wayne and Dan about the universe. The universe. The universe. Ah, if stars could talk, they would probably sound like Rachel there. Thank you, Rachel, for that wonderful introduction. Rachel is the daughter of our executive producer, Lee, and his wife, Rebecca. And uh, I couldn't have done a better introduction myself. Uh, So welcome to another episode of Good Heavens. I'm Dan, and today we are going to be talking about weird stars. What do we mean by weird? Well, it's these stars, everything that we do know about them, makes them fascinating and uh, everything that we do know about them points to things that we don't know about them how is it these stars got this way why are they this way how, how do they describe the universe how do they point back to the glory of god and uh, so weird is just one other way of saying glorious you know it, it, it's strange to our minds uh, some some of these things are unfathomable and we we just can't wrap our brains around them so we only talk about a handful of these things on this episode today a handful of these stars but uh, how wondrous and how inspiring and how encouraging they are to think of them in light of who Christ is so we i think you'll find this episode encouraging and enlightening uh <laughs> pun intended i guess And uh, so sit back and relax and uh, come along and journey through the universe and uh, check out some of Wayne and I's favorite weird stars on this star-filled episode of Good Heavens. Good Heavens, Wayne. It's been too long. Good heavens, it's time for another podcast. It is, and I'm glad we are Let's we're go doing for it. it. Let's do it. We are in uh, Buon Giorno, a wonderful coffee shop in South Lake, Texas. And we are talking today about some of the strangest stars in the universe. And we are only going to be talking about a few, but they are so weird that it will take us at least 45 minutes to talk about their weirdness. But uh, what is weird to us is actually... Uh, glorious to God. It's a reflection of God's glory. That's Uh, right. And so we are going to be discussing these things. We call them weird stars because they are, they defy our comprehension, right? They're something that seems like they would exist in the mind of J.R.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis or something so fantastical. Hopefully you you will have your mind blown like ours are when we're talking about these things today. So I thought right. we Dan. Sometimes astronomers discover something that they have trouble believing is real. And right, that's, right. That's the way we are about a lot of things God created. <laughs> yes, you know? absolutely. So, uh, so what we are going to be talking about is actually real, uh, and uh, very little is understood about the things that we're talking about. Yeah, we have a lot of data on them, but still they remain uh, mysteries and uh, worth a lifetime of investigation. One of the things I thought we'd start with is uh, Paul's letter to uh, the Corinthians, his first letter. And he's talking to the believers about the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, you'll recall that when Jesus first resurrected, it was the women who were at the tomb who first came across this. And when the women went to the disciples and told them what had happened, what was the disciples' reaction, Wayne? It was... You're crazy women. You, this is foolish talk. This yeah. is nonsense, right? Uh, people don't rise from the dead. But Paul is explaining the resurrection to the Corinthians. And uh, Paul is saying he's making the analogy with stars when he's talking about earthly bodies and heavenly bodies. And Paul says there is also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly body is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, one another glory of the moon, 
And another glory of the stars. Star differs from star in glory. Right. So also is the resurrection of the dead. So I love it because I think I think the resurrection is, is baffling and startling and it seems foolish to people. And yet Paul is comparing them comparing it to stars. And I think the stars reflect that kind of mind-boggling wisdom of God, right? Mm-hmm. We, we see these things, we know these things, but how foolish it seems to our finite comprehension that these things actually exist. Right, and uh, in our previous podcast, Dan, we talked about star formation, and so there's a lot of mysteries about that. Right, so it's interesting, we were just referencing the, 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 the Mary Magdalene and all the women at the tomb were the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Wayne, you, you ran across an interesting story and something that people familiar with astronomy, the history of astronomy, are familiar with. Uh, but there is a, a woman who is uh, a very significant in the history of our modern understanding of stars. Who is she and what did she discover? Yes, her name was Henrietta Swan Leavitt. Her, la- her middle name was Swan, Dan. Awesome. That's and, pretty cool. Uh, so she's a very important astronomer, actually. She, she doesn't get much... Uh, uh, recognition, but take us back to 1907 when she discovered the first star that we now call a Cepheid variable. A Cepheid variable. So a Cepheid variable star uh, gets dim and then bright, and it does it in a very predictable, periodic way. And the way that it does it uh, makes it uh, easy to understand and figure out the distance. So it's like Dan, if you had a a candle, and you knew how bright this candle was, and then you you carried this candle off at a distance. Uh-huh. As it gets dimmer, it would give you an idea how far away how it far is. How far away it was. So this, okay. is, this is using the idea of a standard candle. It's something we know what it's doing, so we know how bright it is, and it's changing, so we can use that to figure out distances in space. So Henrietta was the first, if you want to say, eyewitness of the star that dims and brightens. That's right. And when she first discovered it, it was well, it was a monumental discovery. It changed the course of how we understand the distances, the vast distances in our universe. So here is another woman eyewitness to a light that dimmed and then brightened and right. dimmed again and yes. brightened, you know. So it's kind of like it has something of resurrection overtones in what she's discovered. But I, I want to talk about now the fact that the Cepheid, the kind of star that she described, actually played a, a key role in expanding our understanding of how vast the distances are between the stars. Uh, so Right. So, for example, uh, Cepheid variables are all over the universe. They're not just in our galaxy. Yeah. And this is how they determined for sure that the Andromeda galaxy is, is a much farther away than our galaxy. It's not within our galaxy. Yeah, it's two and a half million light years yeah, away I, from us. And that's the closest galaxy to our own Milky Way. So how did we, how did we, here's how we came to discover that. It was, uh, so Levitt, Miss Henrietta, discovered her thing in 1909, 1907. So here we are in 1923. Edwin Hubble is examining uh, the famous astronomer Edwin Hubble is perched high atop Mount Wilson in California with a 100-inch Hooker telescope spending long nights doing these long photographic exposures of Andromeda. And he noticed over the course of time through looking at photographic plates of the galaxy 
that there was a particular star in one remote corner of the galaxy that was brightening and dimming. Right. And he had to look carefully. He went all the way back to 1909 looking at photographic plates of this one particular star. Now, on a photographic plate of stars in 1923, it looked like nothing more than white paper with black dots on it. And so you can imagine the meticulousness and the vision that Hubble had to be able to recognize one of those black dots as appearing, disappearing, appearing, disappearing. Right. So let's talk more about these photographic plates and the, what the women had to do back then. So back then, Dan, it was not, wasn't considered a, a proper thing for a woman to do right. to uh, be an astronomer. Yeah. And, but what they did was put these women to work um, analyzing these photographic plates. So... They found that women were, uh, they believed women were very good at this because a lot of them did things like needlepoint, which is very fine detail work. Mm -hmm. And if they had really good vision, they were uh, looking at these photographic plates. So the photographic plates were glass. So the photograph was put on glass. And so they would spend hours uh, measuring and and, uh, measuring how bright these, these dots were on the glass and and they would figure out all the details and catalog all this data about the stars that were on this plate. And that's how we we still use that today. Modern astronomers still use that classification system, uh, oftentimes known as, oh, be a fine guy and kiss me, or be a fine gal and kiss me, the O-B classification system of stars, O being the giants and the brightest. So we have a, there's a classification system for different types of stars, Based on their brightness and, and the kind of uh, light that comes off right. of them. Yeah. So Hubble went back to these old plates. And even today's astronomers are still going back to some of these old plates. Yes. Because uh, they did thousands of them. Yeah. Uh, so back then, these women did this really tedious job of examining these photographs. And it's it has paid off for astronomers, even to the present. Yeah. Hubble had... Uh, the knowledge and the resources uh, and the technology to be able to to do this. And the groundwork was set by women eyewitnesses, literally women eyewitnesses to to the brightness of these varying stars. So Hubble was doing this. Night after night, day after day, he would examine these plates. And in the fall of 1923, he found a Cepheid Mm -hmm. in Andromeda. Now, what's really cool about this is that uh, Hubble had a colleague, Harlow Shapley. Shapley believed that, and, and at the time, we have to understand that in the, in the 1920s, we, astronomers could see spiral, what they call spiral nebula. Mm-hmm. The debate was whether or not these spiral nebula, the clouds that we could see, were within our Milky Way or if they were galaxies unto themselves. That was the great debate, the astronomical debate in the 1920s. So when Hubble discovered this Cepheid in Andromeda, that solved the debate. His colleague, Harlow Shapley, believed that all these spiral nebula were actually inside the Milky Way. Uh, Hubble was not sure, and so he persisted in his observational science to determine whether or not Shapley was, was right or whether or not that these are actually galaxies outside of our own universe. So Hubble found the Cepheid, and on a glass plate, he famously now scrawled the, the letters V-A-R exclamation point, meaning variable, which is what the, the Cepheids, Cepheids are. They're variable stars. So he had this, this plate is very famous. You can go up and look it up, and it's called the VAR plate, I think, or it has some kind of name, but it's a very famous uh, uh, picture in astronomy. So he wrote a letter to Shapley, 
and uh, it's kind of uh, Hubble was kind of chuffed. He was he was kind of prideful and loved what he did and took pride in what he did. So he wrote a letter to Shapley and he says, "Shapley, I have found a Cepheid in Andromeda." Right, and so he wrote to Shapley. He's like, "Yes, he's trumphing over his his discovery." And Shapley gets this letter, and he reads the letter, and he says, "Here is the letter that destroyed my universe." <laughs> <laughs> and you know, that's one reason why we have the Hubble Space Telescope and not the Shapley Space Telescope. <laughs> yeah, but he was a good sport about it. But that that Cepheid in Andromeda was very dim, very mm. difficult to see. And yet, it was one of the, you could argue it was it was it was one of the dimmest. You, you, it would be almost impossible to see it for you and I on a plate. Mm-hmm. But it changed that little dimming and brightening changed our perception of the universe. So that star now is the most famous, well, unknown to most people, the most famous star in astronomy, uh, V1, mm-hmm. as they call it, the Cepheid V1. In, V1. Uh, and Hubble, the telescope, went back and imaged it in 2010, and they mm-hmm. actually got. Uh, photos from Hubble of this star dimming and brightening over the course of six months. Mm. So it actually verified exactly what Hubble saw on photographic plates. The telescope that bears his name now could see it more clearly, which that's is cool. so fantastic. Um, cool. But so, so you might be thinking, well, that's that's really cool, Dan and Wayne. That's really wonderful. But what does this have to do with me? Does this have anything to do with humanity down here in a coffee shop? And I think it does because I think the story of Hubble's discovery points to a couple of scriptures that at least it reminds me in one in Isaiah where the prophet says that God will not snuff out a smoldering wick mm-hmm. right and then in 2 Corinthians God is talking about light shining out of darkness Paul is talking about how God said let there be light shining out of the darkness talking about us sometimes we feel like our wicks our light is kind of dim nobody sees nobody cares nobody's interested but then God can say let there be light and fan your dimming into brightening. Mm-hmm. So you could change somebody's universe by your brightening that God declares through you. And so, you know, like Shapley's universe was changed by a small, tiny little star or the discovery right. of one. Uh, that even if you think your light as a Christian is dim, God can still fan it into a flame and let it be light for other people. So that's one star. That's the coolest, one of the, that's the most famous Cepheid variable of which I know of. But there's lots of them throughout the universe. Wayne, you have done some excellent research and looking into some other very strange, unusual, and wonderful stars. Why don't you tell us uh, some of the ones that you found? Yeah, so there's a couple really interesting ones. Uh, For example, what is the biggest known star that we know of? Well, it turns out to be... Some uh, a star called U Y Scuti. Scoot, I love that name. Scuti. And you want to you want to. So this is in the constellation called Scutum, and uh, you were saying that Scutum re- means it's Latin for shield, right? Yes, uh, it's it was uh, a a constellation that it's in the southern hemisphere. It's visible right now this time of year in the mornings, um, but it's it's a very small little constellation, and, and I think it, it's Scutum or Scutum, I don't know the Latin exactly, but but it is it is the constellation of the shield. That is Latin for shield. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's really interesting to me how the star you've discovered, UY, it's just, just a, a Greek nomenclature for this star within this constellation, uh, reminds me of the verse that our God is a sun 
and a shield in Psalm 8411. So so what kind of shield and sun is UY Scooty? What why is this the biggest one in the universe? How big is it, Wayne? Well, it's <laughs> <laughs> it's so big it's that so big. Uh, if you put it where the sun is, the outer edge of it would be between Jupiter and Saturn. So it's 7.9 astronomical, astronomical units in radius. So that means about eight times the distance from Earth to the sun. In a, in a uh, radius, which means, I know in, in non-technical, non-astronomy terms, the radius is half the distance across a circle. So if you double the radius, UY Scuti has a diameter in miles. Astronomers don't usually talk in miles, but the diameter of this star in miles, as we understand it, is 1.5 billion miles across. That's big. That is huge. And it, it's just, to me, that is, that's just one star. It's the biggest we know of. And, you know, you think of God as being a sun and a shield. Here's one star with right. a billion and a half mile diameter. The the circumference, if you wanted to go around UY Scutty, it would take you a little more than 80 days because the circumference of this star is 4.7 billion miles around. That is an enormous right. star. Very big. Much, much bigger than our sun. We it's have, also a, a variable star. It, not like a Cepheid, but it's... Uh, has a period of uh, 740 days. So over 740 days, which is more than uh, a couple years, it will become brighter and dimmer. So it, over the course of 740 days, over two years, um, this star periodically, regularly dims and brightens, but it's not a Cepheid. It, it differs in a little, in right. a, a little different ways. So, All right, so UY Scuti is the, the biggest. Wayne, I think you found... Uh, the brightest star. You want to tell us about that? Right. So the brightest star they know of, uh, from what I can find, is called uh, R136A1. And uh, this is 8.7 million times as bright as our sun. Dan. How do you even conceive that? We're st- I'm staring at the imagine. sun right now out the window, and I'm squinting. I mean, and it's behind clouds, but our sun is pretty bright. So if, say if, that again. How many? 8.7 million times as bright. If, if our sun were like that, we would get cooked very rapidly. So it reminds me of the scripture when Moses wants to see God's face. Yes. <laughs> says, no man can see right. my face and no live. No man can see God's face and live. <laughs> no man can see this star. Right. So and this, is a, this is in a cluster of stars that's called NGC 2070. And in the part of the sky, is, it's in the Tarantula Nebula. So the, the nebula, the nebula wow. is named after spiders. Right. It reminds like, me uh, of uh, Bilbo and his knife sting that goes yeah, into the lair and kill, right. kills the spider, and he yeah. saves Frodo. Right. The light going down into the darkness. Another thing uh, interesting about this one is it's called a Wolf Rayet star. Yeah, so a Wolf Rayet star is a star that is uh, it doesn't have much hydrogen, so it's burning helium. It's taking helium atoms and fusing them together. And so that makes it behave a little different and its radiation is different. So um, it has a lot of other, uh, has a lot of heavy, heavy elements and metals and things in it that some stars don't have much of. So it, it eight, 8 million times brighter than our sun. It reminds me of uh, Paul on Damascus Road when he's blinded by the light of, of Christ, right, who is the light of the world. 
And so when God said, let there be light, he wasn't kidding, was he? <laughs> I did not. Right. So this brings up uh, what, what some terminology we should explain to you. Okay, so brightness in terms of looking at stars when, and stuff. When yeah. astronomers talks about brightness, they can mean one of two things. It can mean either intrinsic brightness or apparent brightness. All right, so they, they, it, there's, there's a, a brightness that we see with the naked eye in the night sky. And then there's a there's a, what what you said an absolute brightness of the star, the, what the star how bright the star would be at a certain distance, not what it looks like to us, but how bright it would be at a certain distance. Right. So when we see it, the apparent brightness that we see the way we the way we look, see it in the sky, or if you look at it with a telescope, that can vary based on the distance. So the farther away it is, the dimmer it is, but it can be. A bright star, even a bright star, can appear dim if it's far enough away. Right. So um, they have what's called absolute magnitude, which is a measure of how bright the star would be at a known distance. Despite what it would look like to us. Yeah, if you could take the stars and put them all at the same distance, how bright would they be? Okay. That's absolute magnitude. So making the distance uniform so we can measure each of them, like having flashlights on the counter, all of them turned on, and I'm 20 feet away from them. Here's how big that flashlight would be at 20 feet away, this flashlight at 20 feet away, this flashlight at 20 feet away. That's absolute magnitude, absolute brightness. It's trying to compare apples to apples. So you don't have distance to worry about, right? Okay. And then, uh, but luminosity is the apparent brightness. What it looks like to us. So luminosity uh, will vary with distance. Yeah. So uh, if they say its luminosity is low, it's faint to to look at it or to see it on a telescope. And there's a scale that measures this. So if you have a an object that say has a uh, luminosity of two. That's a pretty bright object. Positive two. Positive two. Yeah, that's a pretty bright object. And uh, when they made the scale, they didn't actually anticipate anything being a lower number than zero. But they started started having to go lower and lower. For brighter and brighter. Because there are objects so bright. So they... If you have an object that's negative, like negative 10 or negative 20. That's super bright. That is super, super bright. Yeah. So our sun, for example, would be a negative 20-something, I think. Uh, yeah, I don't know I don't know the exact the number, number, but right? yeah. the bigger the negative number when it comes to star's brightness, the brighter the star is. Right. Like Sirius in the night sky uh, tonight. Uh, Sirius has, a, I think it's one or two. It's pretty close down to, it's near zero, but it's super bright. Venus has a, uh, a negative uh, uh, brightness. So the, when you look at star charts and you look at a star and it's got a negative, it doesn't mean it's dim. That negative actually means that it's really, really bright. Right. And if you have a, if its brightness number is like positive 10 or positive 15, you, you couldn't, it's very dim. that is very, very faint. Very dim. Yeah. Very dim. I have a, when I do my telescope hunting, I look at, uh, I have a chart that has galaxies on it and the galaxies have that brightness magnitude on there as well. Mm-hmm. And I know with my telescope, if anything is above a plus 10, it's difficult to see. Uh, so I look for things that are 10 and less that I can find with my telescope. Uh, so that it not only goes for stars, it goes for galaxies as well. Right. So when it comes to brightness, we have both stumbled across in our research for the podcast this week uh, a star called Tabby's Star, or more technically known as KIC 846-2852. It's like a phone number. Um, and this star... There's a weirdness associated with it that fascinated the world back in 2015. 
this star was found by the Kepler Space Telescope that was looking for planets. And we've talked about the, the Kepler telescope and the way right. it looks for a planet. Wayne, do you want to briefly describe how this Kepler functions? Right. So uh, the Kepler Space Telescope, it's its kind of sharing Earth's orbit. And uh, it looks at a certain part of the sky, and it looks to see when a star's light dims and then goes back to bright again mm-hmm. in a certain way. So if a planet goes around that star and the planet is along our line of sight to that star then it will make the starlight dim just a little bit so imagine like a uh, a flashlight on your counter and a ladybug goes crawling across the flashlight and if you uh, across the surface of the flashlight if you had a light sensitive measuring device that was measuring the output of that flashlight as the ladybug would go across the flashlight the sensor would dip Right, the light output right. would dim slightly because the ladybug is very small. Right, but if the ladybug was walking across it in a uniform fashion, the light dip would only last a few seconds, and but it would go right back up in a nice V shape, right? Because a, right. L- a little object passed in front of the flashlight. That's right. So they're looking to see if it it does it in a very predictable, regular, periodic way, like clockwork. Yeah, like an orbit. Suggesting so they watch an orbit. it over time to see how this is how this right. looks. So the idea is, if it's a planet in front of the star, and we see this little light dip every thirty days, or every six months, or every right. year, that we're, we right. may be looking at a, a, a an orbit of a planet. Right. But we can't see the Kepler cannot actually see these objects. It can just notice the dip in the light. Right. So this sets us up for the weirdness of this star, KIC 8462852. It was actually discovered by a group of people online. Uh, there's a there's a, a database that you can access and you can find all you can sort through all the data that Kepler has downloaded to Earth in terms of looking at light dips around right. stars because there's more information coming down from Kepler that astronomers can keep up with. Oh yeah, you know. So it's like it's like what the heaven, the psalm says. You know, the day to day pours forth speech, and night yes. to night reveals knowledge. Yes, yeah. It's it's so much knowledge and speech that all of it goes to the internet, and where the astronomers uh, are enlisting the help of the public yeah. to, to sort through the light dips of these stars. Right. So there's lots of things like this today, Dan, in astronomy research that. There's massive, massive quantities of data collected by computers automatically yeah. from various space uh, telescopes and missions and various telescopes around the world. So they collect all this data, and then they they come up with ways to find things in that data. Either they have a computer look for it, but in this case, they had volunteers, and they put the data available on the Internet so they could uh-huh. people could look through this and see what they find. My friend, uh, uh, my acquaintance that works with the Hubble Space Telescope tells me that uh, Hubble, and this is small potatoes now with the kind of technology that's out there, but Hubble downloads about 17 gigs of data per week. Wow. All of the Hubble stuff is archived and available to the public. So there's data to be gone through that, that no astronomer has looked at yet. There's stuff out there in this data, the Kepler Space Telescope, the the data that's available to the public. There is discoveries waiting to be uncovered in the mountain of data that that professional astronomers haven't had the time to to keep up with. That's right. So you could go online and make a discovery. You could be the next Henrietta Leavitt. You could be the next Harlow Shapley or Edwin Hubble. And actually, because of the Internet technology and the technology that it is today, you can actually go out and make a discovery. 
Dan, armies of astronomers could not keep up with all this computer data. <laughs> so, armies of astronomers. Yeah. Okay, so this sets us up for the weirdness of KIC. Eight four six two eight five two. Let's call it Tabby Stark. Tabby Stark, named after the astronomer who helped uh, uncover it, right. uh, Tabitha Boyajian, I think is her name. She's from Yale. Right. Uh, she led the team, research team that uh, the the public astronomers came to her, and she and her team were sifting through the data on a more uh, nuanced and professional level. And they actually confirmed the findings of the Internet Army of astronomers and, and lay people uh, that this star is truly bizarre. It wasn't a data fluke. The telescope wasn't malfunctioning. There's something truly strange about this star. And here, here's what it is, and it's still fascinating people today. They don't really know what's going on. So earlier we talked about the light dip, mm-hmm. right, the smooth curve of the drop in the light output of a star. A nice smooth curve over a period, a, a regular period. Mm-hmm. Um, so take our star. If Jupiter were to pass in front of our star, it dips our sun's light output at about 1%. Now, Jupiter is an enormous planet. Right. But when it, and it uh, goes across our sun, um, it dips our sun's light output only by about 1%, but it would do so regularly right. every so often. Um, so... Something in front, something is passing in front of Tabby's star that is so bizarre and so unusual. They haven't been able to detect it. So, and Dan, for Jupiter and our sun, it would be like clockwork. Yeah. So every you you could count your watch, you could set your watch by it. Right. And when it happens, and how long it takes, and when it stops. When if Earth were to go across it, it's less than half a percent. I think. Right. The, the light output. So something, whatever is going in front of Tabby's star is, one, not regularly happening. Mm -hmm. There's no periodic uh, regularity or predictability to when this this star will dip in brightness. The second thing is, like we said, Jupiter takes down the light output of our star by about 1%. Whatever is passing in front of Tabby's star has dipped this star's light output by a whopping 20%. And it's not smooth. It's jagged. It's unusual the pattern is not recognizable and there is no current instrumentation that we have available to us to detect whatever it is that's going in front of this star well again since it's been discovered there's been a lot of different uh, astronomy research groups that have looked into tabby star and there's all kinds of data that's been collected now on it but i think mostly they're still going through all of that so sometimes it's a very brief very deep dip in the brightness and sometimes it's just a little dip but it lasts a long time so some it just varies a lot and so it's unpredictable they used the uh, green bank radio telescope uh-huh. in virginia is it west virginia or virginia i don't remember um, i think it's in west virginia west virginia I think. and they aimed this radio telescope at it uh, a while back to see if they could detect radio signals from this and that didn't yield anything because originally, after the, the fervor had reached a fever pitch about this star, people were suggesting alien megastructures were passing in front of the star. Yes. I mean, that's how, that's how unusual this, this situation is for some astronomers to take seriously the idea of alien megastructures like Death Stars, right? These were like large solar panels allegedly built by aliens that were going around the star harvesting energy from the, the star, their parent sun. Right. Uh, but that has not yet, that, nobody's really taking that seriously right now. But in truth, people have said comets, dust clouds, uh, asteroids. Right. Uh, but, but if it were any of those things, we would have the means to be able to detect uh, the radiation from these things, like a dust cloud or something. But they haven't been able to do that yet. 
So, yeah, there's still nobody's sure what this is. And uh, I'm fascinated by all these things that are, are mysteries that we, yes. we we have a hard time explaining. Okay, that, so it's the mysteries that are things that are hard to explain that, that are, are really interesting that are really fun. fun. Now, yeah. uh, I bet you this last star that we have uh, in our weird stars is going to surprise people more, maybe more so than any of the ones we've just talked to. Wayne, what is the perhaps the strangest star on our list this morning? Um, drum roll. You want a drum roll? No. Uh, you mean our sun, right? <laughs> our sun yes. has made the list of weird stars. Wayne, what in the world? See, I think this is what we need to, this is very important to me and to you as well. That when you when you read astronomy textbooks, whether you're in high school or college, or you just want to read a book on astronomy from Barnes and Noble or whatever, you will hear when we, whenever they talk about our sun, you will hear over and over again, our sun is an average, mediocre, small little thing, just nothing special about it, average mediocre star. But this is really a misnomer. This is really not what our sun is like. Our sun seems to be totally unique when it comes to the other stars in the universe or at least it's rare rare yeah Yeah. our sun would be classified as a class g dwarf star and that means that it's it's not nearly as big as that other star but it's if you compared it to other dwarf stars it's on the big end of the scale it's a big dwarf star and i think it's funny that uh you know you talk about the 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 bringing together of what is fantastical and scientific? I think it's great that uh, science scientists use dwarfs and giants to that's talk right. about to describe stars. stars right? <laughs> yeah. I think that's yeah, great metaphors. Yeah, right. right. Good metaphors. Good metaphors. That we get from fiction, and now astronomers use yeah. to describe stars. Right, right. It's kind of funny. Yeah. So dwarf is a scientific category. Talk about the. Who the, says hum- <laughs> astronomy is just uh, a, a kind of a non-human mechanical? No, no. Kind of thing is. It, Astronomers are people too. Right? There's a lot of imagination in the study of the universe yeah. going on. Yes. So, okay. So why is our sun on the list of weird stars? So Dan, I was reading an article by uh, an astronomer. By astronomer, his name is uh, Guillermo Guillermo Gonzalez. Gonzalez. I'm with his first name, yeah, but Guillermo anyway, Gonzalez. So right. he's he was comparing our sun to other nearby stars that are s- similar in terms of what kind of light they give off. So he said that among the known nearby stars within 10 parsecs, about 88% were less luminous than our sun. Okay, so 10 parsecs, just for the the layperson, 10 parsecs, a parsec is 3.26 light years. Right. 10 10 parsecs is 32.6 light years. A light year is 6 trillion miles. So if you want to spend time doing the math, go ahead. Yeah. So, So... Basically, all that to say is that stars as far away as 32 and a half light years right. are not like our sun. Yeah, and our sun, if you compare similar stars, our sun is bigger than most of the, the dwarfs. nearby dwarf stars. Okay. That's one thing. That's really important to us, Dan, because that means that the habitable zone around our sun is far enough away. It's farther away from the sun. So if you compare it to other systems where they have planets, we talked about this before, mm-hmm. if you have a small star, the habitable zone will be up close to it. And if you had planets there, they would be in tidal lock. So they would always have the same side of this planet facing the star all the time. Yeah, the habitable zone is where a planet has to be around its star in order for there to be 
Habitation. Yeah, life. For, for liquid water liquid to be water. possible. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So if it's in tidal lock, that's very difficult. Your life probably wouldn't make it. The planet doesn't spin when it's in tidal Right. Lock. Also, if it's close to the star... There can be solar flares, and the variability of the star could be deadly to light. And our sun does not sneeze a whole lot. There's not a lot of... There is solar activity, and it is fantastic. Uh, We have um, a body of researchers who study the solar weather and give us solar weather warnings about when the sun, there's a solar flare or a solar eruption, because the the eruption sends solar detritus uh, at our way at, at high speeds, and that solar sneeze interacts with the magnetic, uh, the magnetic shield of Earth to create the northern lights. Right. But that solar, that solar flare can knock out our satellites and our TVs and everything that's going around the Earth. So it's very important that our Earth, that our sun is extraordinarily stable when it comes to flare activity. Yes, and that's, I think, one of the most extraordinary things about our sun. Uh, it's very, not erupting like a like a Pacific volcano. It's, it's, yeah, it it's, might interfere with radio a little bit, but yeah. it doesn't. It's not going to threaten us. Yeah, and 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 it's the Earth's shield is also remarkable in terms of protecting us from solar flares that do happen. Right. So uh, the Earth's magnetic field shields us, but it's also because we are far enough away from the sun. That we're at a safer distance. Right. And many planets around, extrasolar planets around other stars, they are not at a safe distance. Yeah. What, what else did uh, Dr. Gonzalez come up with that makes our sun well, so unusual? Well, he also was looking at the composition of our sun compared to other stars. and uh, What it's made of, the chemicals yeah, in what, it. What atoms it's made of. Okay. And like in the periodic chart, what, yeah. what elements. And it turns out our sun has more oxygen. It has less carbon than a lot of other stars, but it has more metals than some other stars. Okay. So what, I don't know what that means, but we it's not entirely the same. You know, Every star is not the same Well, it's like Paul said. It's, it's interesting. Here we are, 21st century, cutting-edge astrophysics, uh, confirming what Paul said centuries ago. Star differs from star. In glory. Right. right? And, so Yeah, and Dan, this goes back to... Assumptions about formation of stars. I don't. I don't buy the idea that stars naturally form uh, from just physics, physical processes, really, because they do differ from each other. Yeah. And they don't. They don't end up with the same result. It's. It's not the same thing going through the same process every time necessarily. Right. It's so a- I was reading, for example, there's a there's a quasar with a really extraordinary high abundance of iron. And what is a quasar, briefly? A quasar is a... Quasi-stellar object. Quasi-stellar object is what it means. Not a star, not a planet. It's very, very distant. It's weird. And extremely bright. But uh, we don't know why uh, some objects are composed of different elements uh, than others, necessarily. So the, the, the chemical composition of our sun is unique in comparison to other stars that are within 32 and a half light years from us. So we are, it's like a cosmic lottery. We have got ourselves a really unusual little orb at the center of our system. And here's another obvious thing about our sun that probably does not need to, to be said, but it should be emphasized. It's the only star we know of with a planet that goes around it that has life on it. 
Yes. And uh, thank God for that. Yeah. I mean, we, we did a couple of episodes you should check out about uh, weird planets, uh, strange planets, exoplanets, to where uh, we talked about the, 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 the search for extraterrestrial life. But in that search, and we didn't, I don't think we mentioned this in the other podcast, but astronomers who are searching the, the SETI program, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, among this search is a conundrum among the astronomical community about what would constitute extraterrestrial life and just life in general. There's, mm-hmm. They're having a hard time, and we talked about this, having a hard time defining what a planet is, yeah. and they're having a difficult time trying to define what life is. Yes. What are we, exactly are we looking for? So that, that's really interesting how, how there's, this, there's this melding of disciplines when it comes to the study of the stars. So what else did Dr. Gonzalez find about the sun? Anything else that you uh, found intriguing? The interesting intriguing? thing is the, where our sun is in the galaxy, Dan. Uh, so our galaxy is a spiral galaxy, and they think now it's a barred spiral galaxy, I think. But, so our sun is moving, and our sun is orbiting the center of the galaxy. And where we are located in the galaxy is between two of the spiral arms. And that's a very nice place to be because if we were not, if we were, say, inside the spiral arms, it would be hard, harder for us to see across space and yeah. see uh, things in the We actually stars. exist in what they call the Orion Spur. Uh, which is a, not an exactly an arm, but it is an offshoot of a galactic arm. Right. Um, I know one other thing about our sun that is unusual among other stars. 60 to 70% of the stars that we know of in the universe have companions. Our sun, for yes. all we know, is uh, alone. It does not have a companion around it. Right. So the, many s- star systems are really binary or trinary. So there's often two stars and uh, our star is by itself. Yeah. That's perhaps a little more uh, safe for us in terms of less variability in, in temperature and, and radiation and stuff that we get. But uh, we're not like uh, Skywalker on Tatooine. We're not, uh, we don't have the double sun system. Right. But although we, we have discovered that there are planets that do have a double star system around them. Right. Um, but in talking about our sun, I, it brings to mind uh, Psalm 19, where David compares the sun uh, as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run its course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And uh, David goes on to compare the sun to the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord. And so David is using analogies, judgments, commandments, the precepts of God, and a bridegroom. The sun is like a, a guy that's about to be married. He, right. he rejoices to rise and set. He's using all this poetic description uh, to describe the majesty and the glory of the sun. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen forty one, the sun differs in glory from other stars. He's, he's that specific about it. And he, he ties it right. back to the resurrection. So when you're talking about stars, there is so much theology that they reflect, if you will, for the believer to consider. Romans 1, right? That God's invisible attributes are clearly seen in what he has made. Right, and there's also a passage that says, we shine like stars in the universe. Right. Think of it, well, humanity has problems. We are all fallen. We are in a sinful world. world. But so there is darkness in in, uh, 
the sin of human beings. Yes. But there is a light because of God's grace in each of us when we believe. It's like we're we're lights in the darkness. We are God's God's way of looking at us. We shine like stars. Here's the passage from Daniel. It says, And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of the heavens. Yeah. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And then Jesus says in Matthew 5.16 to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in the heavens. So we shine like lights in the expanse just like the stars shine like lights in the expanse. So if you think you've got a dim light, nobody can see you, just remember that's not true. Edwin Hubble found one of the dimmest stars in the universe and it changed our perception of the universe. It changed Harlow Shapley's perception of the universe, right? Yeah, maybe, Shap- maybe you just haven't found your bright moment yet. <laughs> right. Watch so out. You, God may do something. So if you feel dim, maybe you're like a Cepheid. You're going to brighten again at some point. And God's somebody- going to turn on your light. God's going to turn on your light and, and change people's universe. So, uh, so the stars do have something to do with our lives, very much so. And the more you study them, I think the more encouragement you can derive from the stories and the science behind it, because it's all science and it's all a story, right? It's a, mm-hmm. the, the science and the storytelling, the, the relationship, the metaphors. Good metaphors, I think, get closer to the heart of what a star is than, than just the science, right? You can talk mm-hmm. about carbon and, and all the chemicals and the distance and all the big numbers, right. but, but there's also a story behind them. And the story mm-hmm. is that, that, that the Lord Jesus is the one who made the stars, and they reflect his nature. And they also can tell us and encourage us to think about our own nature. Right. You know, so, so that's it. So, Wayne, I think we did a, I think we, we've covered some strange stars. Uh, who knew that the sun was going to make that list? But uh, it has been a, a wonderfully quick uh, tour through God's good heavens. That's right. It's, uh, they are good heavens, and there's all kinds of interesting things to discover out there still. So, uh, so. If, if this is interesting to you, just want to drop a, a quick note that this Tuesday, if you're listening, uh, March the 20th, Tuesday night, if you're around the Dallas-Fort Worth area, we are having a Hubble Space Telescope astronomer and a C.S. Lewis scholar uh, come from Oxford to talk about stars and fantasy, astrophysics and fantasy. We are featuring Dr. Anton M. Kokomoer from the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, Maryland, and Dr. Michael Ward from Oxford University, who's going to come and talk about C.S. Lewis. And uh, Dr. Kokomoer is going to show us pictures of the stars. And so we're going to hear a little bit of science about the stars, and we're going to hear stories about the stars and and the imagination of C.S. Lewis. It should be a great evening, so if you're around... Uh, you could Google astrophysics and fantasy and find out more about it. Uh, I will leave you a link in the description below so you can find out more about it if you're interested. Come on by and see us. Meet Wayne and I and uh, meet Dr. Kokomore and Dr. Ward and have a great evening of stars, astrophysics, and fantasy. So, Wayne, I think that's going to do it for this episode of Good Heavens. It was good to have you, and we will see you next time. We hope you liked this episode of Good Heavens. Thank you for listening. What is today? St. Patrick's Day, and I went inside the shop, and Mr. Dan was not wearing green. Pinch, pinch, pinch. Wait. I pinched you. You pinched me. Why did you pinch me? Because you're not wearing green on St. Patrick's Day. I'm going to pinch you. Yeah.